0: Geekscape I've been a terrible podcaster sorry it's been so long since my last podcast It's been what a week when was the Geekscape party last week the Geekscape party was last week it feels like forever ago all the announcements all the excitement everything that we've been uh, putting up on the Geekscape.net website there's been a lot going on I guess no I guess you guys did get a podcast last week that was the Toad Hop podcast that's what you guys got last week it was just a short mini pod where I talked to Johnny Ice over at Toad Hop, and we talked about Geekscape coming to the Toad Hop Network starting January 3rd. That's going to be fun. You guys will be able to watch the show recorded live and be able to call in, be a part of it. I think that's perfect. That's always what I wanted with the show. I always wanted you guys to be as big of a part of the show as my stupid voice, which is great. Alright, sorry I have been a delinquent podcaster. We've had some very important things to talk about. Probably the most important film of the year. I know you guys got the Avengers. I know you guys got the culmination of the Dark Knight franchise. But we've got to talk about The Hobbit. W- what would you guys say? That The Hobbit is the biggest geek film of the year? I mean, The Avengers is just so impressive that they pulled The Avengers off. Think, you know, Regardless what you think about the actual movie. I got in a uh, discussion with Eric Diaz and Hong, our two writers and friends, over the weekend about The Avengers and The Hobbit and this and that. I think The Hobbit is the big one. The Avengers... I don't know. I mean, is this is this a worthwhile discussion or am I just wasting time right here? Uh, the Avengers is great, and obviously when you think about the top ten lists at the end of the year, and I will make a top ten list at the end of the year for the top films of 2012. Uh, I'm waiting to see Les Mis. I'm waiting to see Django. Uh, those are like the two that i'm waiting to see but um i seen a, uh, i've seen a lot i won't see twilight but uh i've seen a lot and i'm waiting to see what the top films of 2012 are but the avengers has to be in the discussion whether or not you like the movie just based on how impressive it is that what marvel put together you know what i mean you have to respect that what marvel put together bringing these comic book properties to the screen is something that No one's done on this scale before, so you have to respect that. What Christopher Nolan finished with The Dark Knight Rises, whatever you think of the final film, you have to respect that because nobody has treated comic book material with that kind of gravity on the silver screen, so that has to be respected. Now we got to talk about Peter Jackson, all right? The third huge geek film of the year. Because what Peter Jackson did, you can argue that he laid the groundwork in taking fantasy or uh, you know, t- uh, first off, he he definitely laid the groundwork for this kind of film, where you would shoot three films at the same time with that much uh, risk. When The Lord of the Rings was being filmed, and they were filming all three Lord of the Rings back to back in the late 90s, early 2000s, New Line could have easily closed its doors if this thing had – I mean, this could have been the biggest disaster in Hollywood history. And as they were shooting Lord of the Rings, people thought maybe this was going to be the biggest disaster in hollywood history it was going to completely eclipse Waterworld. it was going to be the biggest failure in hollywood and it was going to take a studio with it in new line so it really is uh it really was a massive risk and um looking back at it i mean the 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 success that it had is just i mean film after film all three films were really good think what you will of the pacing issues return of the king we'll get to that but those movies accomplished something huge, and, and and was that kind of the beginnings of 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 this stuff being treated seriously? You know, because when you think about fantasy movies, especially like the '80s fantasy movies that came around, to Conan, the Barbarian, and Dragon and Crawl Beastmaster. As much as we love those movies, were they necessarily great movies? Um, I think you can argue that some of them actually were. I think I think Ridley Scott's Legend was awesome. You know, I, I think that there was a cool thing with the '80s in fantasy i think that was i, th- I think that they, they actually did fantasy well for a bit or as well as you could in the 80s and now with the technology that they've got at weta and in places like ilm you can just do fantasy on a whole new level and they did that for the first time with lord of the rings remember there was a Dungeons and dragons movie made around that time too with damon wayans or one of the wayans brothers sean wayans or whoever was in that movie uh that movie was not done so well. You know, you did have a couple of these fantasy movies. You had some straight-to-video, Uwe Boll fantasy movies. But Lord of the Rings was really the big stuff. And going back to that world now with The Hobbit, um, I couldn't have been more excited for it. And, of course, you hear the, the trepidations and the reviews coming out that are like, oh, it's just not that great. Or the the pacing issues of the movie. And I'll, I'll admit that the movie has some pacing issues, and I will address that because I think there's actually a reason for the pacing issues. But um, a couple things happened when I went to see The Hobbit. First off, that morning I heard a pretty long interview with Andy Serkis. He had called into one of my favorite Sirius Satellite shows, and he uh, he was talking to the people at Geek Time, and he was talking about uh, the responsibility that he felt making uh, The Hobbit. <coughs> and really, what he said was. Uh, We didn't feel the responsibility to set up three movies for this trilogy. We felt the responsibility to set up six movies. So when all is said and done with The Hobbit, you're going to have six J.R.R. Tolkien adaptations on film, and you'll be able to take a long weekend. Some of you masochists (coughs) don't know why I'm coughing. And you'll be able to see the whole epic, right? Six movies. And when you look at it in the context of three movies or one movie, I, I, I do think that The Hobbit starts out pretty slow. Like even though you're really, really happy to be back in that world, maybe you're not. Maybe you hated the Lord of the Rings movies. To which I say, why the hell did you go see the Hobbit? Are you insane? Um, I, of course, loved the Lord of the Ring movies, and so being back in that world just felt awesome to me. Um, I love seeing Peter Jackson's Middle Earth. I, I think it's, the, I think it is the Middle Earth that we saw as kids, coming out of all the different books and the paintings. I mean, you remember the the fantasy books. Back in like the the eighties and nineties, the fantasy books all had paintings on them. Like I remember the Dragonlance books all had like Margaret Weiss. like the Margaret Weiss, Tracy Aikman Dragonlance books all, all had like the same kind of fantasy artwork on them. <clears throat> and that was something that carried over to the Lord of the Rings books. You know, going into like uh, Barnes and Noble, it wasn't even Barnes and Nobles back then. What, what were the bookstores back then? In like and uh, like seeing the fantasy painting on the cover, and that's really what sold you on a fantasy book. You see this painting, and it wasn't Frank Frazetta. Because he was probably too expensive, but it was somebody who was good. And you're sitting here, and you're like, "Man, that's the scene." And I remember all the Lord of the Rings books having paintings on them, and um, the Hobbit for me w- it was 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 one of those books that had the painting on it. And it came at a time in my life when my parents had just gotten divorced. I remember that summer distinctly. It was it was the summer after my parents had gotten divorced. And my parents got divorced in like April, and every year my my mom and I and my my two brothers. We would drive down, well, it was with my father up at that point, but but we would drive down to Mexico, to Guadalajara, and visit my grandparents. We'd stay in in Mexico for maybe like two, three weeks, maybe a month. And uh, it was a long trip. You can't really drive through northern Mexico right now. It's an absolute war zone uh, run by uh, drug cartels. But uh, back in the 80s, 90s, you could totally drive through uh, northern Mexico, and you could make that trip. And I I remember just being upset. Right. I, I was I was oh, it was a summer before my fifth grade in elementary school. And I remember just just feeling like the world for the first time had this complete instability to it. Right. My my parents were getting divorced. I mean, you guys who, who who have gone through divorce and gone through divorce at an early age like that really is your first bout of instability in a world that you've come into and. You know, you have that youthful confidence and you know how everything's right in the world. You got the mom, you got the dad, you got your brothers. And all of a sudden you go through a divorce and um and I was rocked. I, I completely just being remember being rocked. And I remember my father giving me the Hobbit as I got into the car. And 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 I read the Hobbit on the way down. I I was going on this journey, right? Metaphorical and literal. <laughs> I was going on this journey and uh and I had the and I had this book and and I read the whole thing and then I read it again when I was in Mexico, I completely ignored my family members and then I read it on the, on the way back and uh, I remember the book just being very important to me because because uh, it is this 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 story about a bigger world it is a story about uh, you know a childlike innocence going you know what I mean and like like delving into like a darkness or or a maturity and then coming out of it and even though people dismiss the book of oh it's a children's book you know the lord of the rings were books but the hobbit was is a children's book um i think when you look at the story and you look at at, at the craft of it, it i think that's a i think that's a ridiculously dismissive attitude and i and i'm i'm not angry but uh but it's on them that this is their view that oh the hobbit was a children's book yeah i mean keep in mind uh that most americans at best, read at a fourth grade level, right? Uh, when you've got, I mean, just look at the best, the, the 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 New York Times bestseller list, and tell me that is not one of the most paltry representations of our collective education as a nation. When most of them are written for thirteen-year-olds, you want to dismiss a children's book? A children's book is what we're reading as a nation, so. Come on now, where's the argument? Are you that much better than a children's book? We're not, sadly. <laughs> um, yes, it is a children's book, but yes, the themes in it are classic themes, and I think they're important themes. And I remember I needed that book in that moment of my life. That 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 book got me through some some heavy stuff probably for the first time in my life that book got me through some heavy stuff and you can always be like you guys remember where you were when you read the hobbit do you i mean that it was it was one of those books that you remember where you were when you read it i absolutely remember where i was when i read it and i remember what i was going through and i remember just the story of getting through it outsmarting you know having a strength within yourself and I think the movie has done a very good job of translating that, even with all the changes that Peter Jackson and company have made in integrating The Hobbit into the bigger Lord of the Rings story. Now, you can say that some of this is the 90 pages that J.R.R. Tolkien had taken notes on. He had done these 90 pages of notes that he was going to integrate into The Hobbit to make it more uh, fleshed out with The Lord of the Rings. It was going to seem more seamless. You can say some of that maybe came from those notes. Some of it was just pure storytelling is some of the changes from the book to the movie wonky? Yes. Does does some of the the pacing issues come from it? Yes. Sometimes it does feel like Iron Man 2 setting up the Avengers where you get things and scenes that feel like they're there only to set up the bigger picture for that weekend. We will have four years in the future where we see all six Lord of the Rings movies in one sitting parties at my place, bring the popcorn. Let's do it. Um, it does feel at times like they are setting up a bigger story, uh, in, you know. While they're uh, while while they're completely uh, maybe maybe um, uh, compromising the pace of this film, as a film, the movie works, and some of the changes make it work. Because again, some of the, some of you, I mean, it's a complex issue. It's not black or white. You don't. I mean, I love the Hobbit. I thought the the, the movie was fantastic. Um, are there things that suffered for from the conversion to three films? Yes. Are there things improved by the conversion of three films? Yes. I think that the structure of the first movie, there are things that you have to do to make it work as a film. You have to introduce a villain. In the same way that the first Lord of the Rings movie introduced that one Urukai who had the blue face palm on his face, the one who kills Boromir at the end of the first film, uh, you know, he's kind of the villain towards the end of that movie. The ring wraiths are kind of the villains at the beginning of this movie or at the beginning of that film so when you look at fellowship and you're like okay well they had the ring wraiths and they had that main uruk and he he was kind of the villain and he was kind of uh, our representation of the main evil now you see them kind of doing the same thing with the hobbit trilogy they introduced something new called the necromancer who is seen in the vision by radagast the, the gray now if you haven't seen the the, the, the hobbit you're fucked <laughs> because i'm saying some shit And I wanted to do this podcast with Ian Kerner, but it's Tuesday already. I wanted to do this podcast. I couldn't wait for him anymore. He still hasn't seen The Hobbit. Ian Kerner hasn't seen it. Ian Kerner, of all people, hasn't seen The Hobbit. That's insanity to me. I would have seen The Hobbit twice by now if I didn't think I was going to go again with Ian Kerner and then had him flake on me. I saw the movie in 24p. We'll talk about 48 frames a second. I am going to see the movie in 48 frames a second, and I'll report back to you guys. I'm looking forward to it do I think that it, do I have some concerns absolutely but not as many concerns as I do about seeing things in IMAX 3D with the lenticular lenses you have to keep your head in the same place the, the entire film or else when you shift your head the lenticular nature of the frame of, of the lenses make the sides of the screen turn dark and blurry i think that's a massive problem i'm probably never going to see an IMAX 3D film again okay the changes get back to it sorry so you've got this introduction of the necromancer, who's barely a part of the film, but he, you see him, and he's kind of an evil. Is he Sauron? Who knows? We don't know. But he's a necromancer, and he's a he's a wizard, and uh, and we've introduced it into it, okay? And Radagast is is this the, – Radagast the Brown is like the, the, the forest wizard, right? And he's kind of goofy. I think they took a little bit of the Tom Bombadil character that's not in the film, and they gave it a little bit of this foresty guy to him um some of the cgi is a little some of of the special effects are a little lame when he's on his of bunnies it kind of looks like an 80s fantasy blue screen um at the same time you've seen so much impressive stuff in the film by that point you've seen these cgi animated trolls you've seen uh, you know incredible uh forced perspective work you've seen the entire world so you can forgive them a couple shots of fake looking speeder bike chase looking blue screen okay um that stuff starts to feel a little weighted. Um, the opening has, there's kind of two openings. Bilbo starts to, re- to, to to write a story. He talks about the dwarves being forced out of the Lonely Mountain. Uh, I love that opening. I think it's awesome that they didn't show Smog, but they saw the desolation that he created. They see the, him just killing people. I love that stuff. Um, Smog is scary as hell at the beginning of the movie, and I think it's perfect. Um, then you see Elijah Wood, and Elijah Wood is way older than he was in the Lord of the Rings books. He's the Lord of the Rings movies; like he's like ten years older, and he's taller. It seems like, but you buy it. Um, there's a little bit of weird ankling that happens when they uh, work this day that the mo- that the movie starts on with with uh, older Ian Holmes Bilbo writing a letter to Frodo, and it's on the same birthday day that you see at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Rings right, and the arrival of Gandalf with the fireworks that you saw at the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring. Um, that's that's a little weird. It might smooth out. Who knows how they're, if they're going to go back to it in the next two films. But for the most part, the movie's solid. The pacing issues, there's two reasons for it. I think there, there are sometimes too much going in. Sometimes there was too much just going out of the film. They did introduce some new characters, like the pale orc, who uh, is the main orc in the Mines of Moria who took over from the dwarves, and they they, they, they purged the dwarves from the Mines of Moria. And you see that in a flashback when, when one of the dwarves is telling everybody about Thorin and how awesome he is and how he took down this pale troll and lopped his arm off. The, the pale troll that you think he killed in that battle is still alive. And he kind of becomes like that uruk with the blue palm for the end of the movie, right? You need a villain. So the pale orc has kind of become that villain. He's new, and he kind of starts to uh, to to be the personification of the bad guy that you need for at least the first movie, maybe the second movie. And the end of the movie is the showdown. Y- you need that stuff to, to structure these films, um, or, or else you're right. It is one story that was chopped up into three. How is it going to work? Well, you got to make each movie stand on their own. And for the most part, I think they did that successfully. Are there sequences that seem too long? Um, when they're escaping from the goblins in the uh, in the mountain. Yeah, it's a little silly at times, but you know what? Who cares? I, I do think that this movie has lighter moments than any of the Lord of the Rings movies does, but I don't think it's completely lighter. I think it's got some dark stuff. The riddles in the dark sequence is fantastic. Not just Andy Circus's performance, but the writing of the, uh, of that sequence and the way that the camera was moving and the directing of Andy Circus's performance and Martin Freeman. First off, Martin Freeman... As Bilbo is better than anybody has been in these films. Martin Freeman as Bilbo is just shows you how good of a movie, of an actor this guy is to be able to manage the different tones in the film between seriousness, self doubt, humor, mischievousness. Is that a word? Mischievousness. Martin Freeman's fantastic in this movie. Um, he's better and he's lighter and he has more depth than I think anybody else has in this series um, it's fun to watch him on screen it's fun to watch the majority of the dwarves on on, on screen um, there is some weird stuff I will admit uh, Radagast just disappears there's a sequence where Radagast is trying to, to lure away some warg riders he does a better job of luring the warg riders back to the party and then out of nowhere he just disappears will we even see him in the next two movies who knows but that dude just peaced out <laughs> And I was like, "Wait, where did he go? <laughs> he sucked at leading them away. First off, Radagast and his his bobsled of bunnies was chase, was getting chased by warg riders to lead the warg riders away away from the party, and he just disappears. <laughs> I'm like, "What? Where would he go? Directors Directors cut, huh? Um, that felt a little weird. Um, the introduction of Sauron, you know, in uh, in Rivendell was 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 a surprise and a bit heavy, but." Again, you have to introduce Gandalf's point of view for the entire series, which is he's very concerned that Sauron is returning, and in this particular trilogy, he's concerned that Smog may join him. So having him voice his concerns to uh, to uh, Saruman and and uh, and, and everyone, you know, is great. You got to have that stuff. You got to have his arc for three films. Um. Again, there is some shoehorning going on that does make things a bit wonky. There's a bit of prequelitis that happens a little bit. If the dwarves have told Gandalf that the Mines of Moria are overrun by orcs, why doesn't he say anything to Gimli in Fellowship of the Ring? I understand that Gandalf tried to avoid the Mines of Moria and take... the 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 northern pass that was you know stopped and uh and they had to take go to the mines because they they couldn't pass and they go to the mines and they get attacked by the tentacle creature and they find refuge in the in the mines but the entire time Gandalf's letting Gimli be like oh my god we're gonna eat at my cousin's hall and it's gonna be so great and I can't wait to see my family and he shows up and his family's dead his family's been dead for like a 100 years his family is super dead. Gandalf never thought to take Gimli aside and be like, listen, Gimli, just a little bit of warning. Things might not be as peachy in the Mines as you remember them. And how did you not get the memo that an entire, like, like do you understand what I'm saying? Like, if Gandalf knows the Mines of Moria, oh, I'm getting nerdy. They've been overrun by orcs. How did they not fucking say anything to him? All right? You're a dick, Gandalf. Then again, you can always say, hey, he's a wizard. He has his reasons. Fucking wizards, dude. Wizards. Um, again, the movie is impressive. Just the scale of it is probably the most impressive thing you'll see this year. I know the Avengers came out. But still, the scale of The of the Hobbit is the most impressive thing you'll see this year. It's huge. Um, the 48 frames, I have not seen it yet. But let me tell you about 48 frames because I'm part of this news group and in, in, uh, this list server. We start talking to each other. And people were bitching and moaning about 48 frames. Here's how I stand on 48 frames, which some of you chose to see. Don't get mad when you take a risk and it doesn't turn out for you. Okay? You experimented. Peter Jackson experimented. But Peter Jackson's risk was smaller than your risk. Because he knew The Hobbit was going to make money. Here's what Peter Jackson did. And this is why you can't fault him for the 48 frames. Peter Jackson knew that this film... Series was gonna make money. He knew it was fish in a barrel. The risk on The Hobbit was so small because it's, so, I mean, everybody wants to see this movie and it's breaking records. So if he already knows there's no risk, why not try and just expand the medium by trying something new technologically with 48 frames a second? Sure, who else was gonna get that opportunity? Maybe James Cameron? Maybe Steven Spielberg? Peter Jackson was basically it. When were we not, I mean, it's very rare for a medium as established and as expensive as film to ever do anything technologically innovative. You know, in Avatar, you could have the technological innovation of the 3D in the way that they did that, the way they did motion capture and 3D together, the way that he built an entire world. Love or hate Avatar, he took a risk and went for it. And I think Avatar was a greater risk in a technological advancement than 48 frames a second. Peter Jackson said, hey man, I can't do it on a different film. The Hobbit's going to make huge money. No one's at risk for losing their shirts on The Hobbit for the most part. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to try and introduce 48 frames a second and see if I can expand the the technology of the medium. And my hat's off to that. Whether I like it or not, whether you like it or not, the dude tried to push the medium forward. And if the medium's not pushed forward, it dies. You guys know that. Any medium, if it's not pushed forward, if an advancement isn't made, it dies. So people bitching and moaning about 48 frames a second. I didn't like it. It looked like a documentary. It looked too real. It looked silly. It, who cares? The dude went for it. You paid for it. You didn't like it? Go watch the 24 frames a second version. It was It was made available to you. You're telling me that everywhere in your town, the only way to see this movie was 48 frames a second. No, the 48 frames a second is a rarity. You're crazy. Don't hate on the man. So there's that. The pacing issues. I I heard this and I think it's crazy and I have to tell it to you. Peter Jackson, supposedly, and this will explain a lot of pacing issues, not just from this movie, which had minor pacing issues, how dare you? I enjoyed the entire film. But a movie like Lovely Bones, which had pacing issues, but th- that's not where the problems are, solely lie in Lovely Bones. Uh, King Kong, which had pra- pacing issues. I liked King Kong a lot, but it had pacing issues. Um, so here's what, here's what I heard. Peter Jackson doesn't see the finished film all the way through until the premiere. What? That is what I heard. I heard that the guy is so busy and he makes these movies so piecemeal because he's making three movies at the same time or he's doing so many things. He's working on so many projects because supposedly he's going to deliver Tintin in 2015. He's so busy and he's got so much going on It while he's shooting, he's editing, he's producing, he's doing all this stuff, he's writing. That he doesn't see the finished movie until the premiere or right before the premiere. So as the movie's getting edited scene by scene, he'll go in and he'll see that finished scene. He'll go in and see this scene or that scene finished. Maybe when they're scoring the movie, he'll see several scenes in a row. But he won't see the finished movie start to finish until the premiere. Maybe he doesn't have a chance. Maybe that's how he works. But I gotta tell you, that (laughs) if there are pacing issues in your film, it's a little late to find out then. Isn't that hilarious? Isn't that crazy? I don't know. I mean, I don't know who told me that, but that's what I heard. He does not hear, he does not watch the finished movie until the premiere. That is why you get directors' cuts from Peter Jackson. Because <laughs> he's like, oh my god, he's sitting there at the premiere being like that shit is too long. That was a little slow. That was a little tight. Okay, that was a bit abrupt. Oh man, I gotta fix that. Can you imagine? Wow. That's crazy. But what are you gonna do? Um, so the Hobbit. Pacing issues, 24 frames a second. I, 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 I can't have the... I mean, you can't give me the, the the next two Hobbit movies fast enough. That is where I stand. Sorry if you didn't enjoy The Hobbit, but if you didn't enjoy it and you liked Skyfall, you're an asshole. Straight up. Skyfall was enjoyable, but it wasn't this. And that movie falls apart and turns into a dump in the last third. Um, All right, got to talk about this new Star Trek trailer in the nine minutes of Star Trek that we saw before some of the IMAX screens. Um... Did you guys see this? Did you guys see the? Uh, did you guys see this? The um, the nine minutes of Star Trek. Um, we had. Um, it's awesome, and the trailer is awesome, and I gotta go back on what I was saying earlier about the villain in the movie. I think we figured that out. I think we here at Geekscape have cracked the plot of Star Trek Two. If you do not want to know it, stop listening right now. Um, the plot of Star Trek Two is uh this is what i think it is and uh i got to pull up an email where's my email where's my email where's my email um uh, we were emailing our crack team at geekscape was emailing back and forth uh over the last couple of days about what uh the plot of the what we thought it was because the new trailer introduces a lot of cool stuff and um on top of that let's see what i got here on top of introducing a lot of these stuff. Where is this stuff? i got to find this email. Sorry, guys. I had it all written out in an email. Okay, so here's the Star Trek 2 plot. Are you ready? Um, and, and it's all in the email that, I, that we wrote back and forth. So me and a couple different people, we, we were thinking about what the plot was. And we've been doing this for, a, for for months, since like the footage started showing up. I guess for a month, we've been l- looking at this stuff being like, alright, here's the plot. This is what the plot is, I believe. And it does not involve Gary Mitchell, which I previously thought. The plot Having seen the nine minutes and having seen this recent trailer is this. I believe Benedict Cumberbatch's character is a member of Khan's superhuman crew who has either escaped or been let out of the hypersleep chambers that we see in about the 55-second mark of the new trailer. Um, You see those pods. You see them in the trailer, right? Those pods. They're not caskets. People are thinking they're caskets. They're not. I think they're hypersleep pods from the Botany Bay. Okay? And now he gets... He gets out, and he's a bit of a superhuman. Remember, like, the Khan storyline is all about eugenics and, and improving the human form, right? He, improving humans. So his goal is to free the other caskets, the other sleep pods from the Botany Bay. Khan is probably in there, all right? Um, when he's talking in the trailer about family, that's probably who he's referring to. This, I mean, he could be Joaquin you know, Khan's relative and talking about the family and this. Peter Weller is probably some kind of Dick Cheney like person who's trying to privatize the weapons, you know, and trying to be like, all right, you got super soldiers coming out of these uh, these sleep pods. We gotta we gotta we gotta privatize them. Right? He just wants to use these superhumans maybe to take on the Klingons. Blah blah blah. You guys get it, right? Um I think uh Admiral Pike dies in the film, probably in that first terrorist attack. I think the nine minutes before the IMAX uh, release of the hobbit are the first nine minutes of the movie after that mission they're called back to earth and they discover that earth's been attacked in a terrorist form by you know this new group that wants to free the rest of the botany bay pods um and rather than you, you guys get it right like like, like they, they got it to, pike's been killed they've got to go after revenge they've got to they got to they got to get this superhuman benedict cumberpatch they got to bring him in does that make sense to you guys I think that's the plot. Boom. Has nothing to do with Gary Mitchell. Uh, I wanted my Gary Mitchell, but supposedly Eric Diaz says you can get it in the comic books. You guys get it? That's where I'm. That's where I'm standing here on this. I don't think they're gonna call the dude Joaquin though, because no, nobody liked Joaquin when the, when the original series came out. Um. Okay, so that's my Star Trek plot. That's what I think. The nine minutes were really impressive. Um, let's talk Marvel now, real quick. Uh, if you guys are reading comics, uh, I get asked probably once a week if i'm getting into comics what should i get into i think marvel now has some pretty cool jump on points if you start reading captain america it's a little weird he went into another dimension it's very un-captain america but deadpool would be a fun place to start and i can't believe i'm recommending a deadpool book but deadpool is really damn good um on top of that thunderbolts i like thunderbolts so they're putting a team together and it's got colossus And or no 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 it's got a different team that that's actually x-force cables put it together thunderbolts on the other hand has the red hulk it's got um electra it's got the punisher it's got um who, who else is on this team help me out here does it have deadpool on it i guess it's got deadpool on it um this is like a cool assassination team i think it's a, like a wetworks type team i think that's cool um definitely thunderbolts is a good jumping on point deadpool is a really safe jumping on point i think that's really cool um it's been a really funny book. Um, a lot of these books are coming out quickly. I think the new Iron Man storyline, where he has to like find the different Extremis armor that's been all over the globe and been, been sold, is kind of a cool idea. He has to fight these these souped up people who've who've kind of like the Extremis armor has been been taken and element, you know and different versions of the Extremis armor have been like sold all over the globe and he's got to track it down. It's sort of like a broken uh, arrow type situation where like a nuke has gone missing, but it's not a nuke; it's the extremist armor. So. Iron Man's got to go and hunt it down. I think it's been done really well. Uh, that stuff's been great. Um, you're going to want to jump into that stuff. DC, on the other hand, is just... I don't know what's going on with DC. It started out so promising. <laughs> 52 started out so promising, and here we are a year later, and, man, some of these books are starting to get really not so bueno. Uh, Marvel is kind of where it's at. Beyond that, independent. Really, if, 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 if it scares you to go into Marvel or DC... There's plenty of great independent books. I mean, we talked to Mike Mignola, what, a month ago? Baltimore is such a good book. There's a Baltimore one-shot called The The Play, which I thought was awesome. It came out last week or the week before. Um, Evan Dorkin, who's one of my favorite writers, just put out a milk and cheese book that is just insanity called, I think it's uh, Fun House or House of Fun. They put that out through Dark Horse. Um, Evan Dorkin's a guy who I would love to see write Deadpool. I think he's so damn funny. Granted, I'd probably also like him to just stay indie. Uh, he writes a book with Jill Thompson called Beast of Burden about like... Uh, I think this is a cool one. If you guys are looking for Christmas gifts, Beast of Burden would be a really cool gift to give somebody. There's a hardback version. And it, the art is by Jill Thompson. And, he, and she and uh, Evan Dorkin write it. And I know I've talked about it on the show before. But it is, it's like Fringe meets uh, Homeward Bound. It's a team of of pets, like dogs and cats, who band together to... Keep supernatural forces from taking over their neighborhood, and it sounds like a kids' movie, but it's not. There's actually some pretty mature stuff in there and some pretty scary stuff in there. Uh, it's really pretty cool. It's cool. It's a little cool horror book that I think a kid would like, but I think a grown person loves it as well. Um, and that's, I mean, that would be my comic book recommendation for you guys. Uh, video games. The only video game I've, I've played recently is I downloaded the demo to Adventure Time: Hey Witch King. Why'd you steal our garbage? It's a Adventure Time game for the uh, DS, 3DS. It's awesome. If you're an Adventure Time fan, it's probably the game that you got to get this Christmas because it's like you're playing the show. Not only that, the game is designed like one of our favorite games from childhood, Zelda Two, Adventures of Link. The, Zelda Two, remember, was like Mario Two. It was like the, the it was like the the, the weird stepbrother. It, Zelda Two had that top down thing and you could also level up your guy like you could you could you could improve link and you could you, you know it had that that top down view where you were kind of like on the map and you were running into it sort of it kind of looked like dragon warrior and you're kind of walking around and, and you're going to all these different places and then whenever you got into an action scene it would go to the side scrolling and you'd have to fight it was like one of the only times that in the zelda game that it was side scrolling uh through most of the game so The dungeons were side-scrolling, and the the bad guy fights were all side-scrolling, which is really weird for a Zelda game. So um, they took that, and it's very nostalgic. They took it, and they made the Adventure Time game a lot like that, except it's got the Adventure Time humor, the Adventure Time characters, the Adventure Time attitude, amazing Adventure Time music. If you're an Adventure Time fan, that's what you're getting, and it's cheap. It's on the 3DS of the DS. It's awesome. I'll probably go pick it up. I only played the demo, so... I got some uh, Best Buy gift cards for my birthday. I'm going to go spend them. <laughs> All right. Um, speaking of Nintendo, I'm going to do this. I haven't done this yet. And uh, I actually picked up the last issue of Nintendo Power. Yeah. I was Christmas shopping and I saw it in a magazine rack. And it's, it's still in the wrapper. You guys can hear that? It's still in the wrapper. It's the last issue of Nintendo Power that'll ever be published. And I've gotten the wrapper. And it breaks my heart because I remember the very first issue of Nintendo Power. And uh, inside is this poster with all the issues. I mean, looking at this poster that is in here, and it's got every cover of Nintendo Power in history on this poster. I'm shocked by just how many I remember. From the first one through the last, what, 20 years of Nintendo Power? 20 plus years? 25 years of Nintendo? That's it. 25 years. Wow, I remember so many. Th- I remember the majority of these covers. I probably, if I saw the insides, I probably remember the majority of the insides of these things. But here it is: the Final Edition Nintendo Power. I'm opening this thing. Um, you probably will hear me cry right now. Um, here, I don't want to tear it because I'm going to read it. But uh, here we go. I'm going to get my nostalgia fix in, and I'm opening. I'm going to use my teeth. I don't care. <laughs> It needs more salt. Uh, Here we go. Oh, do you hear that? Do you hear that? That's my childhood being unleashed. What if it's like a a spell, and when I open this, I age and I end up like 80 years old? Here we go. The sleeve is off. Final issue of Nintendo Power. I'm holding it in my hand. I'm flipping through it. It's almost too much for me. I'm being overwhelmed. Oh my god, I'm gonna cry! Okay, I'm not gonna cry. Here we go. I'm just gonna open up this poster real quick and show it to you guys. (laughs) You're like, it's audio, you asshole be talking about there it is all laid out 1988 to 2012 25 years of nintendo power wow it's crazy i recommend. i mean i recognize the majority of these covers. that's either a testament to my love for this magazine or my complete sadness as a human being um okay guys that's geekscape we ran long i know i'm just talking to myself at this point um hope all is well expect some more geekscapes Coming up for the end of the year. I'm going to go read Nintendo Power. And then I'm going to go to the studio and keep working. Expect some Duck of the Dead news very soon. Love you guys. Peace out.